On October 17, 2018, Justin Trudeau tweeted, Profits out of the hands of criminals, protection for our kids, today's cannabis is legalized and regulated across Canada. Many pro-cannabis advocates celebrated, thinking the hard part was over. Fast forward 995 days later, and here we are, still fighting many of the same battles as before. Today I'm sitting down with two industry veterans who have first-hand experience of how infuriating, expensive, and difficult it is to operate a legal cannabis business here in British Columbia and more broadly in Canada. Joining me today is Jacqueline Pahoda, Executive Director of the Association of Canadian Cannabis Retailers, and Matthew Greenwood, co-owner of Up and Smoke, a local cannabis store in the Mount Pleasant neighborhood. Today we'll be exploring three main themes. One, the regulated market, challenges that companies like Up and Smoke are facing as a compliant operator in this market. Two, the unregulated market, focusing on three subtopics, which are health, taxation, and public safety. And finally, we're gonna to touch on what I describe as some game changers that we need to see, and you'd like to see, around policies and solutions in order to create a healthier cannabis industry in Canada. So Jacqueline, Matthew, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, great to be here. Now, before we get into the regulated market, just for the listeners to get a bit of a backdrop or backstory on who you are, why you're in this business, what you represent. Maybe Jacqueline will start with yourself as the executive director of the Canadian Cannabis Retailers Association. Also known as ACRES. That's Acres. our acronym. Yep. Okay. <laughs> so can you give us a quick one minute overview for both of you, please? For sure. Um, so my name is Jacqueline Pajara. Um I started working in the cannabis sector um, because my dad actually um, passed away pancreatic cancer in 2014. Um, so that introduced me into the world of medical cannabis. I actually come from telecom and insurance professionally. Um, and through a series of you know near misses and unfortunate events, um, as it were, I started to work on the um, licensing side. So I have a consultancy that does pr federal production licensing and also um, retail provincial licensing. Um, and you know, through that work, I have you know garnered a, a significant understanding of the regulatory framework that we're dealing with. And you know, I ended up meeting a great group of great people who were really interested in uh, public advocacy on the retail side. And that is how I ended up as the executive director at the Association of Cannabis, Canadian Cannabis Retailers. Okay, thank you for that. That's good. My story is not as exciting as Jacqueline's. Uh, I basically, I am, my day job is a commercial real estate agent with Remax Commercial Advantage. And one day I cold called a dispensary called Sunrise Wellness and they became my clients for an additional location uh, as well as my friends. And, and now I'm, we're business partners. And so I have a, just a, I prefer to smoke weed with my friends than have a whiskey, uh, simply because is I like the effects of cannabis, both the during and after effects, instead of having you know a nice bottle of scotch. I don't like the the wake up in the morning. So, I like I like cannabis for pain as well as social, and and that's how I got into it because I believe in it and I think it's more suitable for social situations because it doesn't make us act crazy. Well, that's a good introduction. Well, thank you for that. Let's talk about the regulated market which is where you both spend your, your days. First of all, the Cannabis Act simply states that people can buy dry or fresh cannabis or cannabis oil from provincially licensed retailers. So my first question for you is, can you provide more context to what this line and the rest of the Cannabis Control and Licensing Act says? Because I understand there's been 12 additional enactments since 2018. I'll open that up there. 
So basically what that means, Andrew, is that I have the right as a, as a provincial licensee to buy from the provincial distributor, which is the BCLDB. Well, it's the BC Liquor and Cannabis Branch now, so I got the acronym wrong. Technically, they haven't changed their name yet. Okay. Wow, I got hit on the technicality. <laughs> so that what that means, Andrew, is that for any consumer that buys directly from the BC Cannabis Store right now, so if you're going on to bccannabisstore.com, don't go there, come to my store instead. Um, <laughs> Basically, Basically plug for up and smoke. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Up and smoke's the best. Um, and so, but if you add a slash and you add wholesale, it's the same website. So that's where I buy all my weed. So my license allows me to buy that weed at wholesale prices and then keep it on my site and only on my site. It cannot come off the site if it's not sold to the consumer. And, and I get to sell the weed. And that's it. Part of that license, though, is that there's a lot of compliance to it. So every gram of cannabis that comes into my store has to be tracked and submitted to the federal government. So that is, that is a very onerous requirement, which is outlined in that term of your act. Okay. And I think an important thing to, for your listeners to understand here is that there are two regulatory regimes that we're dealing with. So we're dealing with okay. a federal regulatory regime, which is the Canadian Cannabis Act. Um, so that covers production, processing, and sales to the distribution apparatuses that Matthew was talking to across the country, largely. Um, and then there's the BC Cannabis Act and also the Alberta Cannabis Act and the Ontario Cannabis Act. And each of one of those provincial acts specifically governs the distribution and retail sale of cannabis products. Also the marketing of cannabis okay. products. Okay. Uh, if I may just jump yeah. in, the best way to explain that is if you totally missed it was, this is the way I explain it to my customers, is okay. the federal government tells you who grows it. The provincial government tells you who distributes it and who sells it. And the municipal government tells you where. So if that okay. makes sense, the three level that's of self-government. That's really, that. I'd like that, dumbing it down to the layman's terms, that's great. Yep. Oh, yeah. Okay, so then my next question is, walk us through the requirements to open a legal cannabis store in British Columbia today, because so far, it sounds pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's four steps, Andrew. Okay. Step number one is to submit your paperwork along with your interest in real estate. Now, the, the interesting part about the interest in real estate is you will not know in the city of Vancouver unless you have the green zone, the unicorn green zone, which doesn't exist in Vancouver. So your listeners are aware the development permit market, aka the municipal zoning in Vancouver, became a market in 2015. So since 2015, cannabis entrepreneurs have been taking stakes in 300 meter protected zones throughout Vancouver. So in 2021, when you're going to open a store, we're just going to use the Vancouver market as in a store in Vancouver, then you need to find an area that that has 300 meters distance from schools, community centers, uh, daycares, um, halfway houses, and SROs and things of that ilk. And if you can't... That must, that must be pretty difficult. Well, it's impossible. There are only 92 addresses in all of Vancouver that comply with those requirements. All of them have other businesses in them, basically. You then need to go to the Board of Variants to get the zoning, the MMRU zoning. Now, do you think any landlord in Vancouver is going to let entrepreneurial Matt get six to eight months worth of free rent just to find out if he can get the zoning? Probably not, right? right no, right. no. You're not no, going to advise no. your clients that's to let huge, that happen. Yeah, that's a huge cost to incur. Exactly. So then I got to pay 80 Especially grand. if you don't even know if the answer is going to be yes. Exactly. So no matter what, I got to pay 80 grand just for the ability to submit an application to the city of Vancouver to get the zoning. Okay. And then I go through what's called Board of Variance, and this... 
wonderful woman beside me is the queen. Her and her husband, Ian, are the queen and king of the Board of Variance hearings. <laughs> and then you do this song and dance to a, a board of citizens, not city planners. And if you're a citizen of Vancouver, this should make you so mad because the people that are making planning decisions when it comes to cannabis retail in Vancouver, Ken Sim would love this, is the citizen. But the citizen, the citizen review panel is called the Board of Variance. I think it's made up of five citizens. It's five, of them, yeah. five citizens will decide then and there whether your cannabis business can go forward. And the city of Vancouver planning will, won't really have a say in it. So that means that all this money we're playing to city planners through our property taxes, through our all of our taxes, through our, uh, what's it called, our utilities taxes, yeah. aren't actually being used by the city of Vancouver. Those assets that we're paying for is not being used to make this planning decision. Instead, the citizens have taken it upon themselves to decide which neighborhood gets weed because of the way that this, this policy is being written. Okay. There's three things, right? Yeah. We're, we're just, we just got that. Funny. That's just one. We got that. Yeah, there's four. There's four. So now you're like, so that's oh, one. Yeah. Oh so my. One, you got to find a location. Right. Good luck. Right. So now you're already right. into it. So for maybe 80 to 100 G's if you're in the city of Vancouver. Let's okay. just use that number. Okay. Then you got your development permit. Yippee ki yay. Let's go to work. No. Now you've got to submit your 15-year work history, your five-year spousal history, your five-year address history, two years of financials, and if and all your holdings. But what if you don't have a business? Like if you're just starting. Then how are you paying for this business? How did you just pay $100,000? Oh, personal financials. Yeah, like you. Oh, I see. Yeah, so you have to go through what they call fit and proper. So what this is with the provincial government. So during, and, and this is only after you've received the municipal approval. So remember the timeline in your head is you're already eight months into this application. And now you're getting into step two, three, four. Okay. And step two, three are kind of happen congruently, congruently where they do the background check and they also do the fit and proper. So okay. what happens is like... But that I would think makes sense that you don't, want to ha you don't want to have criminals running, like organized criminals running a le legitimate cannabis business, right? 110%. By no means do I think that that should happen. Okay. And I'm not saying, I'm not criticizing that. What right. I am criticizing is the fact is it takes six months. Right. The to do term, this diligence. Right. And the worst part is, is that for some reason, in my experience, that you go to two ministries at this point. You go to the Ministry of Finance, who audits your financials, and then you go to the Secretariat General, who is the top cop, and he goes through your background. And they, you will find in many instances that they ask the same questions. Okay. Because what tells you is that these two ministries, which represent a lot of taxpayer money, don't even have the systems in place to communicate to, to talk each to each other. other. I think it's important to note for your listeners that the ministry responsible for the cannabis file is the public safety ministry. So, is Mike Farnworth yeah, Minister Farnworth is the, right. is our is our minister on this file. Yeah, he's a really nice man, really good guy. Just unfortunately, he's got to deal with COVID as well as a new industry. And you know, one of the things that I always I always keep in mind when chatting with government officials is, you know, you're they're regulating a seven to nine billion dollar industry in this province, and they're trying to put paper on top of that. Right. When you know, year after year, it's been doing this kind of revenue in the black market or the unregulated market. Yeah. So it's more like the the problem that the regulator has is convincing these folks that their way is the right way. Yeah. And, and frankly, as you know, through sales. And the reason why we're having this conversation is that it hasn't really gone that way. So we're we're at so just to recap here for listeners. So one one is getting municipal approval for a location, and this this doesn't happen simultaneously. You got to get that first. So that's eight to nine months. Then you've got to go through fit and proper, yeah. and then you have an interview. So that's step three. 
And then step... Was step three is the interview? Yeah, you have to get the interview. Is that is, part of fit and proper? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's the last one. But that's the scariest one, because then you have a senior investigator from the RCMP asking you questions. Well, why is it scary? I don't like the cops. I'm in the weed business. <laughs> I don't like the regulator. Yeah. <laughs> like, and still, but, I mean, if you guy. got a clean record, you probably don't have much to worry about. No, it's true. But they also look at your social media. So it doesn't matter. Like, say your best friend growing up fell in with the wrong people. Yeah. You know, they will ask questions about mm. that connection. I don't, you know, mm. I don't have any of that. But, yeah. you know, I'm sure there's people that I've run into at events that I have posted yeah. for photos that, that have turned out to be bad people. Right. And it's just the way it world. I mean, yeah. I don't know. If so go through the, go through the interview and then you and then after that you have to build your store out then then you have to then you have to put up the money to put out to build out the store and then you have to staff your store and then you have to get your you have to get your product in the door and then you have your final inspection and then you can finally turn the lights on okay and your final question for you here then Mm -hmm. just to to get an understanding of how long this takes and this maybe uh jacqueline is your something for you to answer Mm -hmm. when you look at the various retail operators out there like matthews What's the fastest you've ever seen someone go from start to finish going from making an application with the municipality they're wanting to set up in to having to actually selling cannabis? What's the fat and what's the average turnaround time in Vancouver for a new applicant? I would say the average turnaround time I, I tell people to build in between 12 and 18 months. That 12 is to 18 months. Yeah, wow. that is my advice to people in other jurisdictions. The land use is significantly less challenging. In yeah. fact, we have the opposite problem in a lot of other jurisdictions where we have an over density of licensing. Um, so in those jurisdictions, the land use is much less onerous. So you're looking at potentially between six and eight months from a licensing process. And that's for a first time applicant. That's really important to remember because a second applicant, so if you've already gone through this process and you're opening a second store, you still have to go through this rigmarole, but it is obviously much faster because you hold a clearance provincially from a security perspective. I see. So my second store will be a lot quicker. I see. But my first one took forever. So what you can take away from what Matthew has said here is obviously this is a significant capital outlay um, and you're holding real estate and you're in a revenue negative position for, you know, almost a year in many cases, especially in Vancouver. And I mean, that puts you on a back foot as a business owner. I mean, when you open your doors in the environment that we're about to speak about, yeah. um, you know, Acres as an association, we represent 46 brands across BC, which is approximately 95 storefronts. And, you know, I've heard again and again, regardless of jurisdiction, that, you know, people open their doors into an environment where, you know, they can't market and they're competing with a really sophisticated, unregulated apparatus. And having to hold real estate for that period of time is you know very detrimental to the average entrepreneur yeah i got i gotta assume that with all these barriers to entry it only allows an opportunity for the Mm well-funded to even get into this business exactly now now isn't there one of the rules is that you can't have more than eight stores correct and i'm assuming that was if if i recall that was the reason for the ndp government choosing that was they didn't want this to be controlled by one major a couple major corporate groups from back east Mm -hmm. true But then at the same time, all of this additional layers of bureaucracy and costs kind of make it impossible for the average Joe or Jane or whoever's trying to set up a single shop to be able to set up in the first place. To give you an idea of how hard it is, the bureaucracy, in my first year of business, I've paid the city of Vancouver $56,000 in city of Vancouver license fees. $56,000. And I have received no support from the BC government, none. 
and you're listening to this David E.B. and Mike Farnworth, you got my emails. Um, I got no COVID support. All of it's done is just my business partners and myself bootstrapping the heck out of this. Really? Most cannabis businesses were excluded from any COVID relief. So, um, you know, the wage mm. subsidy programs, um, in many cases, served because... Wage subsidy? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. most people were not revenue uh, positive in the 2019. Oh, right. Of course, it was yeah. based on... Right, right, sure. Which, you know, excluded um, not only retailers, but also producers. But, but we're $56,000 to the to the Vancouver... Uh, city, city of Vancouver business what? license fees. $33,000 annually. Where's the other... So the, the $17,000 was paid in July, prorated when I opened. Oh, I and see. And in December, I had to pay them again thirty. Four thousand dollars. Wow. Yeah. It's uh, it's mid twenty twenty one. In your mind, should our government, and I'm just using the word government generically to talk about provincial, federal, municipal, should their focus today be on educating the market about the regulated industry versus unregulated, or should it be around enforcement of the unregulated market? Like if you could pick one or the other education or enforcement, what would your choice be? Uh, can I answer that question? Yeah. I we might both have different answers. I, we might have different answers, but I'll go first if you don't mind. Yep. Um, I would say historically, um, you know, we can see that enforcement has been largely ineffective on this file. I mean, if enforcement was an effective measure, we wouldn't be having this conversation because cannabis would still be illegal. So to me, this is not a matter of, like, I think you have to remove yourself from um, the idea of like legal, regulated, un- illegal, um, legal, and start to think about what we want to accomplish with legalizing cannabis. And so from my perspective, there is only an unregulated market because there is a market for that product. And so the consumer is in a position where they have been acquiring cannabis in a very you know straightforward, potentially inexpensive way for a very long time, especially in British Columbia, because we have a, a, an extremely long history of unregulated access. So what we're doing here is we're attempting to change consumer behavior. Right. We are trying to push people into the regulated system. And I believe that a carrot is more effective than a stick. And I think that in this particular instance, I mean, there's a whole plethora of reasons that enforcement is is fraught because, I mean, there is a medical apparatus that it goes along with cannabis that is outside of the recreational framework that carries a constitutional implication about right to access medicine. So that is very complicated. We don't want, you know, like, ugh, gross. So to my mind, the best way to deal with this is to incentivize the public to change their consumption behavior. Because as soon as that market goes away, I promise you the unregulated market will evaporate. Nobody is going to be selling cannabis in an environment where it's not profitable. So I would actually second Jacqueline's point because enforcement doesn't work for two reasons. And the most important reason is this, Andrew, is I do not get to be an entrepreneur in the cannabis industry. And I need my fellow entrepreneurs and peers to hear this. If it wasn't for the unregulated market and their advocacy and those brothers and sisters sitting in jail for weed crimes, like weed is, is cannabis is a far better drug from a societal perspective than alcohol. Because you tell me how many people that drink a bottle of scotch at the Terminal City Club or whatever and crash their car and hurt somebody versus the guy who smokes a joint. He's not going to crash his car because he's not, he hasn't lost all his mobility nor his reaction time as much as an alcoholic has behind the wheel of a car. So the stigma around cannabis drives me crazy. Uh, and with education, like the thing that the average consumer doesn't know is how many times there's a tax output from cannabis when it's bought. So like my favorite thing to talk about is an ounce of weed. An ounce of weed in my store is $100. You heard that right, $100 ounces every day. $29 of that ounce alone goes to the federal government in excise tax. 
That's a 30% tax rate. Yeah. Find me an industry that gets taxed at that height. You can't. What about the uh, tobacco industry? Not as big. Not, yeah, not on the output because mm. the tobacco isn't produced here. Right. The tobacco is right. produced over there. That's just the output for the excise tax on the cannabis. We're not talking about the GST and sales tax when it gets sold from the processor to the distributor, which then is taxed again when I buy it. And right. then it is taxed again when you buy it, which, you know, I think that's four taxes. Right. Cannabis plant plays by the time that it hits your lips and you're smoking it. Yeah. There's no other industry or no other real, real product in Canada that pays that amount of tax. Amazing amount of tax. And I'm assuming that I have no idea what cannabis costs. You just mentioned $100 per ounce. I'm assuming with that added tax on it, it must make your product a lot more expensive. It's than actually that. included. That's the, that's the thing that's killing this industry is the process. The, the producer has to pay that tax as soon as they put the stamp. Just back. to give a, the listeners a context, like what, if I want to buy unregulated cannabis one ounce, what's the cost? Oh, I, anywhere from... Between 260 and $300. Okay. For, for quads, though. Like yeah, for, it's for good stuff. So let's say you're looking at a compassion ounce, which would be something that you might, like a cheap, inexpensive, between 160 and $180. And, and a regulated product? $100. Yeah. And the thing is, right? Um, maybe I'm confused here. It sounds cheaper from yours, Andrew. This <laughs> podcast is the best opportunity that I have to tell all your listeners that I sell that that price of product because I cannot tell the public. Because oh, I, I was under the impression are. that uh, regulated product is more expensive than unregulated. Just because people haven't been in stores and nobody can let me tell my story. So when I get opportunities... Okay, so if like, I want to go buy cannabis... It's going to be cheaper. Should, it's cheaper if I go to your store. Absolutely. And okay. it's tested, regulated, and Health Canada approved, so there's no pesticides. Well, and that's the, a great segue into uh, our second topic, which is the unregulated mar market. Did you want to say something, Jack? I was going to say the um, specifically like that that cost. I mean, is going to benefit everybody who buys it as well because when you buy that hundred and sixty dollar ounce in the unregulated market, we don't capture any of that economic activity from a tax perspective. So you know, when a consumer goes to Matthew's store and pays a hundred dollars, you know, twenty nine of that is going towards public infrastructure. It's going towards public good, right? Yeah. Like that's the long and the short of the advantage. And the fact that we are not able to express that to the public is disturbing to me. Are um, you allowed to advertise? No. no. You can't advertise? No. Oh. Even what I just did by putting my price on your podcast, it is if a Health Canada official listens to this podcast, and I want it on your podcast, because yeah. I want I want your listeners to know this yeah. point too. If they listen and they decide that that's a problem, I'm going to get a letter. Yeah. Right. Well, for what it's worth, you're not advertising because you're not getting paid and I'm not getting paid. This, yeah. We're all doing this for for fun, for fun. So, Absolutely. Okay, let's, so that was, that was a great segue though, Matthew, into the unregulated market. Mm -hmm. Let's maybe start. So there's three themes I want to talk about here. One is the health side. Mm -hmm. Then I want to go to taxation. And then I want to talk about public safety. So let's start with the health side of it. Is there a difference from a health perspective between... Um, unregulated and regulated cannabis? Um, I would say the difference, I, I don't want to speak to the health implications because we actually don't have any meaningful understanding about the health implications of, for instance, like combusting, like, like powdery mildew, which is a common contaminant in cannabis is. So what I will say instead is from a health perspective, if you want to know what is going into your body, the regulated system is the place to purchase your cannabis. Because I mean, and why is that? From an unregulated perspective, there is no incentive from the person that is selling you that cannabis to be honest with you. In okay. fact, they are incentivized to be potentially dishonest with you. Whereas in the regulated system, you have 
uh, a very comprehensive set of um, test results, a very comprehensive set of results that tell you, A, what's in that product, like from a cannabinoid and a terpene perspective. So those are the two active components in cannabis. And then also it demonstrates that we have under, for instance, um, 5,000 parts per million um, contaminates on a biological level. So it's a very high standard. Um, and you guys can have access to that um, information as a as a person from the public like you can go right. into Matthew's shop and say hey you know I'd like to see those test results potentially it's actually so, better than that on your cannabis packaging there's going to be a 1-800 number or an info at email if you info at email and you want the COAs of that particular lot what's number, a COA a certificate of authenticity okay yeah, or a certificate of analysis, <laughs> analysis depends on who analysis. you ask. Okay. <laughs> um, seriously, but this this is helps. Like this is a tracking mechanism. Yeah, this no, this is test results by lot. So on really? your cannabis package, you'll notice that there's a lot number, a package number, and then all this contact information. Mm -hmm. And so when you email your producer, so say it's Aurora, you'll say Aurora, uh, you'll say Aurora Blue Dream lot number, whatever the six digits are. And then usually within 24, 48 hours, somebody from that producer will send you back the test results of that lot number really? so you will know the, the the chemical balance that's in it so the terpene thing that we were talking about earlier the, the terpenes are basically kind of like what takes your body on the thc effect so everybody's going to act different with terpenes so knowing your terpene profile is important because then you'll know which cannabis works best with your body okay. and so this information is readily available to the consumer all they have to do is email the producer they can come to my shop absolutely but I have to do the same thing and it's probably better more efficient for them to email the producer themselves because we'll do it but like if you get your email wrong or your phone number wrong then we're not gonna mm. get you the information so Funda so, so, sorry, fundamentally, I would say it's like um, the ability to know what kind of, like what the caloric value of your food, for instance, right? Like, you know, uh, if you buy a cookie, it has a, a set of, um, you know, information, content, ingredients, all those things that demonstrate to you that, yes, somebody has like paid attention to this. There's a quality assurance program in place, and this is exactly what you're getting. That is, to me, very appealing as a consumer. I mean, if you're cognizant about what you're putting into your body, knowing what that is, is like a huge selling point from my perspective. That being said, I will say that people have been consuming unregulated cannabis from an unregulated space for a very long time with, you know, not a lot of health outcomes. That's the other concern, like a consideration here is that we don't have a lot of people getting sick. We don't have people dying. So it's a hard kind of conversation to have about the health, you know, impact of what unregulated cannabis might actually have on you. Yeah, put it this way. If you read the ingredients of every single item that you put in your grocery cart, then you have no business buying unregulated yes, meat. 100%. Because you care about what goes into your body. If you're right. one of those people that eats at McDonald's every day and is like, yeah, Big Macs, then you probably don't care. Right. That, that's the level of interest that you have on your body. Right. And it, it really depends on the individual. I myself want to know that my weed doesn't have heavy metals, pesticides, or other contaminants. I guess if we were to use a parallel to, say, the um, alcohol industry, mm -hmm. if I go into Up and Smoke to yep. your store, Matthew, and I buy my cannabis, it's like me walking into a private liquor store, buying a case of beer, mm -hmm. And I know I know what's in that beer because there's a contents. That, versus if I go to Uncle Buck's, you know, moonshine that he's running out of his garage, mm -hmm. um, versus buying from that store across the street that you were talking about, mm -hmm. um, I don't know what I'm getting. Yeah. And and it sounds like from what you've suggested, Jacqueline, it's not like there's a long history of laced or tainted uh, marijuana or cannabis 
but that is a potential kit concern or, mm -hmm. or risk, right? Is that um, something can be in there? Maybe it's not as as intentionally nasty, but as you pointed point out, Matthew, something as simple as some kind of toxins that aren't intentionally in there, mm -hmm. but because of the way the cannabis was grown in an unregulated environment. Where where does unregulated cannabis grow in today? Like if I were to go to the shop across the street from where yours is, um, where is that cannabis likely coming from? Coming from BC or other parts of the world? Maple Ridge specifically. Maple, Maple Ridge. Um, but yeah, it's, de it's definitely- Are there the any legal cannabis stores in Maple Ridge? There are three, I believe now, Spirit yeah. Leaf and yeah. Uh, Muse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that there's another one that's- But Maple Ridge is like a big uh, exporter of- uh, Well, Maple Ridge specifically has, I believe there are 5,000 medical licenses issued by Health Canada for growing for personal medical use or for a designate, as a designated grower. And a significant portion of them live in the Maple Ridge and Mission area. Right. I grew up there, so I, I can speak yeah. to this very, 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 yeah. um, very it's, it's like accurately. The, it's like the wine industry in the Okanagan. Maple Ridge has got this kind of artisan, okay. Maple Ridge, Comox Valley, um, the Green Mile is what we call it outside of Kelowna, and then Nelson. Those are the likely right. concentrated spots that they're coming from. Um, right. It depends on the person who is buying the cannabis, but the, one of the nice benefits of having unregu unregulated space is that the supply chain is normally very short. Right. So that's nice. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Let's jump to taxation. How much of a net revenue loss do you think we're missing out here in BC because of the unregulated market so we have yeah. captured um it is estimated of the you know consuming public in bc which is you know potentially 30 percent of adults between 18 and 22 percent of that market and i believe we collected was it 19 million dollars in excise provincially on the cannabis file um in 2019 i believe it's 2019 uh because we haven't had 20 20s budget come out yet. Um, so, I mean, that is a, per there we go, let's do the math on that. So if we're capturing 20% of the market and we, by we brought up, you know, we got $20 million out of that, we're missing $100 million or $80 million worth of potential excise revenue from a tax perspective if we were million. to su successfully capture. And that's only the excise tax. So that doesn't include PST, which would be, um, I did the math 7%, recently, yeah. significant as well. Um, so, so sorry, do you have an, do, do you know roughly how much, uh, I don't know what they call it, like s street pricing no. of value of, of cannabis is sold in BC? Nobody annually? does. There are a couple of estimates, though. Um, there are some folks who have done some work on the unregulated market on an economic side at an academic level, so they're not motivated. The, the problem with the numbers that the RCMP and Health Canada um, like put into the public is that they're quite grossly inflated. Um, so it's there's an estimate. What's that grossly it, inflated? How the, much is the, val the value of the cannabis? Oh, so the every price. cannabis rate is worth like hundreds of thousands of dollars, when right. in fact it probably isn't really worth that much money. Okay. Like, realistically, but just speaking. to simplify this, like going back to kind of layman's terms, like is our provincial government missing out on lost uh, tax revenue because of this continued unchecked illegal cannabis industry? Massively, and I also believe they're also losing money on their their build out of the public store network because there is a cannabis industry that we've been talking about, this unregulated cannabis industry that has existed for hundreds of years in British Columbia. Only a government would decide to not use the existing industry and build their own from the, from the ground up. It makes zero sense to me. I understand the BC liquor file because of the end of prohibition. They wanted to make sure that they controlled all the liquor sales in BC. 
cannabis was never really prohibited because it wasn't like there wasn't the same kind of the things that happened in the 20s to rum runners. And so instead of using the existing people that are already there and just getting them, you know, on the right side of the law, they have decided to reinvent the wheel, build out massive stores and spend a lot of our taxpayer dollars. Yeah, the uh, you're talking about these are not stores like up in smoke. These are actually government built out and these are, run stores. They are called these are like the equivalent of like uh, a BC liquor store. Yeah, they're called the BC Cannabis Stores. There's currently 16 that are currently open, I believe, or maybe it's 27 now. It's 27. It's 27, but there's 200 coming to market. Uh, they have a great location in Metro Town, but they just can't open it um, because We're, they just can't get it open. They can't get it approved or something. And I think that what you can take away from what Matthew has just said is not only are we not maximizing the tax value of this sector, we're also, you know, potentially expending public funds to create an infrastructure that is superfluous, right? Like we have. So if we if we were to separate just the uh, BC cannabis store network mm -hmm. of 27 stores today, potentially going to 200, what you're suggesting, Matthew, is that those stores actually lose money yes and i would suggest that we're not talking about the revenue they're generating from sales of of uh, cannabis from stores like yours but if you look at that network they're losing is money. that is that information public no and i would love the bc liberal critic to stand up and ask these questions what about just to finish off on taxation what about like cafes for example like can you go to a cafe where you're allowed to smoke cannabis as as the executive director and myself will happily tell you, not yet, but we're working on it. Uh, it's actually not a licensing issue as much as it is, is a work safe issue. Oh, I see. Because if you think about it, you know, smoking, if you're going into a place to consume cannabis in a cannabis lounge, then the liability is on you walking into that room, right? right? The issue in my, in the issue that I've run into when thinking about the policy mechanisms on this is the work safe model, uh, the people who are working in there serving the cannabis. It's the stigma around cannabis, Andrew, is, is it's madness because you have a whole bunch of people who have, haven't tried the plant in years, making rules for people that trade the plant. And then they wonder why it's not working. It just Yeah, it's a bit shocking that out of all places in the world, BC's government could screw up cannabis. And a left-wing government at that. <laughs> okay. Again, green what, field. What? When we talk to people like you and we see the dumbfounded look on your face, don't take it the wrong yeah. way. But like most people, the stigma that I face is most people think I'm a stupid stoner. I'm highly educated and I'm right. an entrepreneur that invested in this business. Yeah. What I am dealing with is like a big mafioso bully is what the government is. Right. Like the things like, you know, like making a reasonable argument based on reason and fact does not skate in my industry with the, with the regulator. Really? It's, it's, it is like the big green monster that is cannabis is going to steal their children. And I can tell you right now, as a father of two beautiful daughters, I would much prefer my children to use cannabis than alcohol. Because a lot of the problems that have been happening and coming to light at UBC are derived from people putting what into people's alcoholic drinks. They're putting GHB and date rape drugs into 20-year-old girls' drinks, and they're taking them home. You know what doesn't happen? They don't get date raped if they smoke a joint. Right. There's no risk there. Now, I don't think it's fair that my daughters can't drink because of the, the risk associated with GHB. However, I, again, as a parent, would much rather my, my kids smoke weed with their friends than drink. Yeah. Yeah, and Matthew makes a really good point about stigma because stigma continues to stifle this opportunity and what's happening 
in Canada, in my opinion, is that we're losing our first mover advantage. We have an we had an international opportunity with a brand, especially a provincial brand in BC, that is internationally famous. BC Bud is famous the world over. People, yeah. if you yeah, go for to, sure it is. So yeah. what we have done by overregulating this scenario is not only are we squandering at the domestic opportunity, we're also squandering our first mover advantage in an international market. Right. Which is, I mean, just baffling to me. On the theme though of like ancillary businesses or follow on, like, like, look, when I grew up as a kid in the 80s in Port Alberni, mm -hmm. it, was a it was a logging town. Mm -hmm. The local politicians would often talk about, you know, why it's important to support the mills because they had spin-off businesses that would come from all the logging industry. In fact, that was a kind of this continual theme of why we shouldn't just export raw logs, that we should do value add. So is there other ways in which you could see here in BC uh, if the regulated market was more um, uh, like if it was if it was if it was thriving because I don't get the impression it's in thriving today there would be other types of industries or businesses that would benefit from that uh, absolutely I mean we, there's an opportunity here from a tourism perspective that okay. is just being like I don't know just thrown it out oh, baby oh, with bathwater goodbye there is you know, a model that exists right now in Amsterdam where you have consumption spaces that are also cafes that is world famous. It is international draw for tourism. Right. Until, you know, BC gets into that mindset where, you know, you can go to a space, buy the cannabis and then consume it at the same time. There is no destination for that tourist. Right. There, There is no reason for you to this pick. This is really smart. Right. I, mean, I went I went to Dublin uh, on a business trip. And I went to the Guinness factory exactly. and man, they probably spent easily, I don't know, 20, $30 million in this facility mm -hmm. for the tourists. Yeah. And you get, you pay a ticket and it was expensive. You paid like a hundred bucks and you go in and you get a little taste of Guinness you at the end, tour. you see the tour and stuff. And their gift shop, they were just selling like crazy. Yep. Then I went to the Jameson whiskey place, the same thing. Is this the idea you're talking about? That's exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, you know, creating hubs that are destinations in the same way that you would have a, a winery as a destination or right. a craft brewery. And the thing that you had said right there about that gift this shop. This could really bring tourism to Maple Ridge. Huge amounts of tourism, <laughs> huge opportunity because it's already happening. Why aren't we capturing the activity? And, you know, your comment about that uh, that swag that you can buy at the Guinness factory or the, the Jameson in the gift shop. Again, lost to us, not available to cannabis retailers. Wait a second, capacity. you can't sell swag? You can't sell an Aurora or a can Canopy no, t-shirts? I cannot sell anything with any weed brand on it. My t-shirts would be great. I'd bring you an Up and Smoke t-shirt right now because we call ourselves the meme dealers because that's the only way we can advertise without getting our, our account closed on social media. Are you serious? Yeah, so we 100% do memes. You're telling me you can't advertise? You can't make some t-shirts to say up and smoke you can't co-brand like an aurora up and smoke ball cap the only thing that i can do right now is accessories so lighters ashtrays rolling paper stuff like that and to be frank with you like i would never do that because it cheapens my brand sure like i want hats t-shirts hoodies and, and like really comfortable sweatpants you know? it's yes. even kind of more um unfair it's than that because i mean let's say matthew decided he wanted to give a significant donation to i don't know the food bank uh, the food bank is not allowed to tell anybody that he did that. They are not allowed to say thank you up and smoke for this wonderful donation. Really? Oh yeah. Absolutely not. It's it's this like this is when when you look at the when you when you talk about the regulated cannabis industry in Canada, 
the reason why it's struggling is not because of the unregulated market. It kind of is because they make better product, but it is because of the regulator and the regulations. Yeah. And the reality that no, I don't care what angle you take on this, it will always end with the, the, the bottom line is this, is non-weed people made weed people rules. And instead of fixing them, they're making them more difficult. Wow. I mean, I can offer some context if you think it would be interesting to your your listeners here um, as to, you know, when Matthew talks about the regulatory burden and how that's holding the sector back, I would say I would agree with you 100% that, you know, that regulatory burden is far more detrimental to legal cannabis than the unregulated market is. Uh, and the reason that we're there is because t twofold. So first of all, the Cannabis Act, federally, the one that governs the production that we talked about, um, was the product of taking an old medical act that treated cannabis, A, like a natural health product. So not like a consumer product like beer or wine, but rather like, you know, Jameson products that you would get from the, the um, Chopper's Drug Mart as a, you know, St. John's Word or whatever. And so medical framework gets transitioned into a recreational framework without any consideration to the fact that we're not dealing with immunocompromised people. We're not dealing with people who are can't have cancer or, you know, other challenges. We're dealing with you and me and, and you. We're all, you know, immune people and the um, like our immune systems are fine and dandy and the regulations don't take that into consideration. And if you look at the regulations in other jurisdictions for recreational cannabis that have that available to them, I'm thinking of specifically Colorado and Washington and Portland or Oregon rather, um, we don't see anything like the level of onerous requirement for processing of this product. Um, mm -hmm. Fundamentally, cannabis is more akin to tomatoes than it is to aspirin, right? In its raw form, right? Like right. As, a, as a consumer good, it is, you know, it's perishable, its quality depends on its freshness and the way that you handle the product. And our regulations don't take any of that into consideration. They in fact, you know, create a scenario wherein we are detrimental to the quality of that product. And when Matthew talks about, you know, it's better quality in the unregulated market, a huge portion of that is the regulatory burden. It has nothing to do per se with you know, the ability to grow in a regulated space, it's what happens to that product after they pull it off the plant that becomes horrifying. <laughs> and I think that, you know, that is something that, you know, we did because, you know, there was hesitance. This was a new file. We were first internationally to make this move to legal towards legalization. So I appreciate that cautiousness. You mean Canada? Canada, yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I appreciate the cautiousness on the part of the regulator. However, like we have demonstrated that we can safely sell this product. Well, we're three years past. Like three this years is, in. This is no one's dead. You know, there's not piles of bodies lying in the street. What are we really trying to mitigate here in terms of risk? To me, the only thing that we're doing here is, you know, dampening the economic opportunity. Absolutely. We should be exporting cannabis around the world right now. Our, our growers should be celebrated as the number one growers in the world for cannabis. Yeah. And, and like right now, I think we only have two export markets, and that's Israel and Portugal. Uh, there's, I think the UK takes stuff from you, us but Germany. It's a really good point that we don't even export, and there must be other jurisdictions in the world that would easily take oh, our cannabis. There's it, It's... It's madness when you sit here and you think about the natural resource development that we do. We cut down 200, 400-year-old trees. We could be cutting down four-month plant cycles.
Right. We're it's never going to grow the damn tree back in my lifetime, your lifetime, yeah. anybody's lifetime. Yeah. That plant, though, that's shit. That's a really good point. Man. Yeah, I could grow three of them in a year. Well, and yeah. that, that's a very good point because we're missing that's an opportunity great point. for carbon capture. Can you imagine sure. if you sequestered, like if you're growing 100,000 square feet of cannabis, it's biomass, it's sequestering carbon. If you dispose of that biomass properly after you've taken the flower off the plant, yeah. you've just buried, you know, 400 tons of carbon into the ground right right like and we're missing i'm still i'm still blown away that you can't advertise like i'm thinking about like canadian oil sands husky energy who are having like these they i mean i'm not trying to make a take a position on pipelines or not here no, but no. just like you know they <laughs> want to talk about environmental impact they can advertise on you know hockey night in canada but you can't have a t-shirt nope. let me ask you something else here guys <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> this is my last question on taxation yeah mm -hmm. Is there an indirect way for government to effectively tax profits on illegal cannabis operators? I'll repeat it one more time. Is there an indirect way in your mind that the government could effectively tax the profits on illegal operators? So you're asking illegal operators to self-report their revenues? No, no. I'm asking if you've got any ideas and creative ways to... Here, let me give you an example. Okay, because I had one of my of my own, and I, this one I came up with like ten years ago, yeah. back when way before anybody was even talking about having legal cannabis. I said it was a huge industry in Canada, in BC, it still is, and I thought, well, why don't we? Okay, so what do cannabis operators need to operate? Well, they need hydroponic equipment, yeah. and so I thought, well, why don't we just have a massive tax on hydroponic equipment? And it, unless you can prove that you are like a tomato grower or a cucumber grower and therefore you can at least in a, for a one-time sale you know char charge like a 200 percent premium on that hydroponic equipment and therefore your illegal operators arguably unless they're trying to try and illegally import this hydroponic equipment will pay it because they've got such huge profits to make anyways and now you're in an in indirect way you're taxing the illegal market so i'm just wondering is there any kind of way that you could tax the illegal market. I have I have an idea of how you might consider that. I mean, I don't know if you could do, uh, you call it a tax, but the reason for everybody's edification that we have such a culture of cannabis cultivation in BC, does anybody know the answer to why? No. So there's two reasons. So first reason is draft dodgers. So everybody from California came up in the 60s and brought all their sweet, sweet seeds with them. Right. And second reason is... Salt Spring Island. Yeah, exactly. And Maple exactly. Ridge, Tuxeda, right? Yeah. Tuxeda. Maple Ridge, potentially. <laughs> Comox Valley. Um, and then the other one is cheap hydro. So it is right. inexpensive from an electricity perspective. Same thing in Quebec. So our two specific hubs of unregulated cannabis production in this country are the two places that have very right. inexpensive electricity. So, I mean... That's a creative one. So you could you could effectively just jack up your hydro rates if you go on places that you know are basically running grow-ups. Or more to that, you could use the hydro accounts, the ones that are running high in houses, and you'll know it's a grow-up. So instead of just taxing them through the hydro bill, you could probably physically show up to the address and, and you would know it's there and you could the, the government or the regulator could have a very frank conversation. You know. So let's talk that, about... Then that, that gets into the uh, enforcement. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was 
enforcement because you're asking me how to capture tax. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, so like I wouldn't say that you go there as an enforcement as an enforcement agent. I'd say you go there and say you're clearly doing an illegal business. Now, you know, let's play some taxes. Like here's a GST number because that is what happened to retailers prior to legalization. Yeah. Is the city of However, Vancouver, just to be a devil's advocate, if you did that, now you're allowing someone to run an illegal business uh comfortably by just paying the tax anyways okay that's, mm. and it's a tough one like it's one tough. other consideration here with my my suggestion just for everybody's edification is that you know many people grow cannabis under health canada licenses that are government issued for personal medical use so how would you differentiate between those people with their high hydro bills potentially and then people who are you know diverting which is what we call selling into the unregulated market and that's th a big challenge and that's a big piece of the unregulated market is the you know the acronym better than me, but is those licenses. Yeah. Those licenses are, are a big deal. And is that a big part of the supply side of the illegal market? Is these people who have like the build, they have the legal right to grow 500 plants? Diversion has traditionally been a challenge with unregulated. That's what we, they call What's diversion. Diversion is the um, taking the product, uh, excess product from your medical license and selling it to other people that don't are covered by your license. Yeah, of course. Because I mean, like, what fool would think that someone who's run, who's growing their own um, medical marijuana in their home and has too much of it is going to just throw the rest in the compost? They're going to sell it for sure, right? And what we I need mean, to if you're do. you're a fool if you think they're not. We need um, to create a situation where they so, can sell it legally to medical patients. That's the long right. and the short of it. It's right? like it's like uh, having a solar power panel on your roof and. Uh, supplying BC Hydro with your excess electricity. Mm -hmm. Let's now go to the public safety side. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now I'm going to quote, I'm going to reference two tweets and then I'll like to get your comments. Now the first one is the one we have here from Justin Trudeau because he says, profits out of the hands of criminals, protection for kids, today's cannabis is legalized and regulated across Canada. Classic Justin Trudeau waves his magic wand and the world becomes a perfect place. That was 2018. Three days ago, the Surrey RCMP quoted, buying illegal cannabis puts money into the hands of criminals. And they put this picture and you see uh, guns, drugs, money. And I went into their press release and they went on to say that the RCMP's gang and drug enforcement units in Surrey in two days in late June, this is very recently, they seized five bricks of hashish, mm -hmm. 1,250 THC-infused butter containers, two boxes of edible cannabis products, over 1,100 preloaded cannabis vape pens, nearly 8,000 cannabis clone plants, 33 kilograms of prepackaged dried cannabis, over $65,000 in cash, five firearms, and two handguns. Mm -hmm. Like, let that thing sink in for a second. Five firearms and two handguns. Now, the irony of this, it's in friggin' Surrey. How many legal stores are there in Surrey? Thanks, Doug McCallum. There's zero. Zero. So if people don't think that illegal cannabis isn't falling into the hands of gangsters, and, and criminals that are, are dangerous. I'm not talking about the person who's got a license to grow some cannabis in their greenhouse in the back door who's a peaceful, law-abiding citizen. I'm talking about gangsters, people who have guns, 
and are using this as a means to generate profits and create pain in our society. So on that note, you can hear my tone and you can get my sense of where I come from on this. How do you think the government's doing with respect to enforcement of this market? I'm going to answer that question with a story of my own, if you don't mind. Please. So I started in residential real estate about eight years ago. One of my first managing brokers, I'm not going to name him just because he didn't ever want me to name him in this story. He called me the other day and said, Matt, I need your help. And I go, what's up? He's like, well, my kids are buying weed. And I'm like, how are they buying weed? It's legal. Like, they have to be 19. Well, apparently they're buying it off a website and they're delivering it to their high school parking lot. So no. So these are kids that are these are under the age of eight. These are high school age children who are buying weed on their smartphones in the bathrooms of their high school, and they are then getting the weed delivered in the staff parking lot of said high school. That would never happen with me because you get ID'd if you walk into my store. If you, you look under the age of twenty one for sure, if you look under the age of twenty five, um, you get ID'd. Whereas there's no ID. So yeah, there's no there is no accountability there is no desire to follow the rules if you're buying your weed through gentlemen like those referenced in surrey and and furthermore there's no labels on that product and there's no health there's no testing so you don't know what you're getting and you don't know what the source is fundamentally because i mean you don't know who the person you know providing that cannabis to as somebody who's buying from the unregulated market where they are and where they're from you don't know if they're you know a law-abiding citizen who's a mom and whatever or if there's somebody with two handguns in their back pocket right. and that on that list of things the handguns are the thing that you know like the guns the firearms generally are thing the thing that really concerns me because you know Part of the triumph of cannabis and the history of cannabis in Canada is that the successful regulation of the medical market really diminished what we're talking about here. And we're seeing a resurgence happen post-legalization. How did we Yeah, get that's the craziest part of this. <laughs> it's like I said earlier, I think, which you quote, I used your quote, which is how can the BC government screw this up so much? I mean, like we're seeing like hard criminals, dangerous criminals, like thrive in a market where it appears to me there's virtually no enforcement. What does, out of interest, because you said there's a legal store Not across. Not anymore, it's okay. gone now. But what, what does enforcement look like today? Or is there any? To be honest with you, Andrew, I never personally witnessed it because I was terrified. Because, you know, you, you've just posted a photo. And that was the reality that I dealt with for eight months, thinking that that was what it was across the street from me. So if you think a man with two daughters and two business partners and a beautiful wife, if you think I was going to go risk that just to make sure money, no. Of so I have not. no idea. So this has got to be solely in the hands of this, uh, the, this is, the government. This, this is, is the CSU. This is the Community Safety Unit is what they're called. Okay. And from my understanding. How much power do they wield? Do you have nothing? No. Oh. <laughs> nothing? A wet noodle worth of power? Like I can slap you with spaghetti. That's the CSU. That's what they can do. Or they can write you a fine. Hot takes over here. Oh, I'm so frustrated. <laughs> um, so wait a second. You're telling me that the police are not, I mean, other than this kind of activity, which is really, you're telling me that an illegal cannabis store is unlikely to get a visit from the police? It'll, they'll get a, what it's called is an educational visit. I'm air quoting, educational. I don't know what it means. But basically it means that they walk in there, they say, knock, knock, you can't do this. Mm -hmm. Then they have to come back. They have to witness and, and whatnot. So I'm not exactly sure how it works. I never stuck my nose in to really figure it out because, again, I, I just didn't want that yeah, threat. Of course. Um, but uh, I can tell you there... that the CSU comes 
and then the VPD supports because the VPD is the only one that can take proceeds of crime. This is the kicker. The CSU cannot confiscate. What's this stand for again? Community Safety Unit. I think it's important for your listeners to understand how enforcement, like what the mechanisms of enforcement are. So yeah. as Matthew had mentioned, you know, he's got this store across the street. So how does the CSU know about that, right? How do they know that there's an unregulated store? It's up to the public to call and say, hey, there's an unregulated store. So let's say there's, you know, an operator who, you know, they're beloved in the neighborhood and nobody ever calls. They will continue to tick along as they always have with no concern or consideration from our provincial government. And the reason that is, like, I, I think that we need to frame this very carefully, is that, you know, there was an impulse on the part of this, you know, this elected apparatus, this government, um, to allow for a transitional period so that we could capture people like your business partners, people who were working in the medical market and they were going to transition into a regulated framework and then, you know, that was going to be a success. Yeah, they're not that dangerous criminals. No. They're, these, are, these are people who want to do good. Yeah. They want to pay taxes. They want to run a business. I, I want to just I want to give you yeah. an idea of who my business partners are because they are unregulated and they've been called that. But they're not just unregulated. And this is like my business partners names are Dominic and Maximilian. And I need you to know that they were so good at what they did that people would travel from all over BC to buy their medical cannabis from my business partners. Mm -hmm. These gentlemen won awards for what they did mm -hmm. for the cannabis community. And they were locked out of this industry for a year and a half by the provincial government. Meanwhile, big companies that had never touched cannabis at all and were opportunistic stole that from them. And so now me and my business partners, Maximilian and Dominic, are fighting an uphill battle where we can't advertise. And these big companies can just like take locations and, and just basically throw their financial might around. Whereas like the people who, who carried this across the line are left out in the cold. And the worst part for me is that these big companies that are winning right now, they're like na-na boo-booing these people that are on the sidelines. And the only reason why they get to eat in the sun is because these people sacrifice their lives. Right. So I'm pretty frustrated by that point. I can hear that, yeah, for sure. Well, you just got you can never forget where you came from. Like you came from Port Alberni. You'll never forget that sailor culture. <laughs> you came from Maple Ridge. You'll never forget the ridge. I came from blood. the island. I'm so laid back. Where I'm wearing are you from? Victoria. Oh, from Victoria. I'm wearing sweatpants. You can't tell, but I'm wearing sweatpants and this weird kind of <laughs> big Lebowski shirt. So I'm laid back for life. Are there any incentives for illegal operators to t turn to becoming a, a legal operator? The regulatory burden is so high, and this is another very interesting thing uh, for your listeners' edification, is access to business services is non-existent for cannabis professionals. And that includes people who are licensed retailers and you know federally licensed as producers. There is no option for Matthew to go into his bank and ask them for a line of credit. There is no option for Matthew to go into his bank and ask them for a loan. Wait a second. As a as any uh, sorry as a legal operator, you I can't, can't get favorable terms on a business loan. I cannot like I. I'll who do pay legal operators borrow from? Nobody. Bank of mom and dad, and then yeah. other like big assets. Private groups, placements. Like, like, but this goes back to your point, Matthew, which is, it these barriers to entry mm -hmm. really only make the environment. Uh, uh, something that a, a well-financed group could get into. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and yeah, exactly. So starting July 15th, 2021, which is next week, legal cannabis operators are allowed to deliver directly to buyers. So how will this impact your business and how will it impact the illegal market? Well, it will be great. I probably shouldn't say this, depending on who's listening to your podcast, but you know what I don't have on July 15th? What's that? Insurance. 
Mm-hmm. Do you know what the BC government didn't do, Andrew? Talk to the insurance industry. So no underwriter is willing to give me insurance. So you know what that means? No. That means that I'm delivering the weed. Personally. Personally. I will, if you order weed from Up and Smoke after July 15th, and I hope you hear this, myself, Maximilian, or Dominic will deliver the weed to your door because we cannot get liability insurance for anybody else to do it. Mm-hmm. It does not exist. I have an email from my underwriter in my phone right now that says all four major underwriters for this type of life, for this type of insurance refuses to insure this. Yeah. <laughs> And the reason for that is that this entire sector has been designated high risk by our financial oversight bodies, right? What FinTrack, it's not called FinTrack anymore, but the organization that is FinTrack now has designated the entire sector high risk. And so that means insurance and financial services are largely lost to us. So what we have done here is we've, you know, successfully um, through a lot of advocacy work on the part of my association and other people in the market. You know, we went to government, we made a very strong case for delivery and how it would be a tool for Matthew to compete with the unregulated market. Um, you know, create a space where we're competing on convenience, which is a big pillar of consumer, um, you know, like purchasing decisions. Um, and instead of, you know, this being uh, a boon to the retailers, et cetera, they're in a position where they can't launch the program because there aren't services to support it. So, I mean, it's kind of a bridge to nowhere. Mm-hmm. If you're going to give me a tool, that's great. But if it's broken or, you know, it's missing half the, how, like if, the if you have me a hammer without the head on it, I'm, I'm kind of still screwed. Um, and that's the challenge that we face here, right? This, Be- is, uh, this is amazing. <laughs> this is really amazing. You want part two? I can give you part two. Mm. Let's hear it. No, no, give me six months. And I'll have part two for you. So. <laughs> I, honestly, okay. Here's so let me ask you this. There's so there's delivery, mm-hmm. but the other the other part that I've heard about is being able to actually deliver your cannabis. Like the, apparently the legal operators are actually delivering it through FedEx or through Canada Post. We can't do that. There but, was, but is that happening? Is that okay, you validate whether that's happening or not? No, absolutely happening. So yeah, the so the unregulated market does it. Yeah. The BC Cannabis Store can do it. Mm-hmm. So if you buy from the BC Cannabis website as a consumer, you get it to your local post office. The way the policy was just released is I. Are you serious? Okay, so let me just stop here for a second. Make sure this is clear. So you got up and smoke. Yep. And then you got this lethargic over t- over overrun. BC Cannabis Store. Yes. I go online. I check out your website. There's no button for me to click to have it sent to my home. No. Nope. But I can go on to the BC Provincial Government's cannabis site, and they can have it delivered to my home. Yes, they have a monopoly on online sales. Mail order. Mail order. Mail order. Yeah, you can, with us, you can do click and collect, which is basically you go on my website, you buy your weed, and then you come to the shop and pick it up. You show me your ID and your credit card that you paid for it with, and you can take it. Mm-hmm. As of, obviously, July 15th, I will be able to deliver it to your door. But, uh, yeah. Not by mail, though. Um, and, I mean, like, there's a lot of foibles that come with by mail uh, delivery. And it's very popular in the unregulated market. You can buy, you know, BC Cannabis in Ontario right now and have it mailed to you via Canada Post. And, and it, uh, Canada Post actually recently uh, came out with a new series of smell-proof uh, bubble envelopes. So I suspect that they might know that unregulated cannabis makes up a significant part this is, of This their... is crazy. So, okay, so can you at least, if you're going to be delivering cannabis to my home, and you're driving in your car, can you at least you know, expense the cost of your vehicle to m- deliver your cannabis to me? I wish, no, because unfortunately, the way the policy is written is the company needs to own or lease the vehicle. So as a small business person, I have a car. 
why can't I just use my car? What's the big deal? No, I need to have a legal piece of paper that says that this car is now leased to my company. And so you that, have to go out and buy your own car or lease your own car yeah. through the company? Yeah. I can't just use my own vehicle. I can't use like my, my e-bike or my skateboard. I have to use a company-owned and insured vehicle. To wrap this up, I want to talk about policies and solutions because it's obvious to me, it doesn't seem like it take much to come up with some just very simple solutions. We've talked about a bunch of them already. But can you highlight for me, Matthew, Jacqueline, some, some really sort of good ideas that you think this either provincial government or the federal government, wherever you, or municipal, but municipal is tough because every municipality is different. But if you think about the provincial government, is there anything that they could kind of do in the next six months to really change this industry to make it a, and I call it a healthier industry where maybe the small operators that are making it for themselves and their friends can carry on, mm -hmm. uh, that legal operators like yourself have a better fighting chance of success and that these criminals, these, these dangerous criminals get pushed aside. So my answer to that question is actually really easy. So my, my focuses would be more, would be two on federal and a little bit on provincial. The two biggest things for me right now is let me show what my store looks like inside. So like right now I have what's called window opaquing, which means you cannot see into my store. So if you stand outside of my store, you might think it's like a porno shop or something kind of untowards. If you actually walk into it, you'll find that it's got high ceilings, beautiful lighting, really well laid out. There's some really cool videos playing. The music's always on point and the staff are really friendly. But if you stand outside of my shop, you have no idea. It's just another weed shop. You don't know. So I would love the ability for the, the average consumer walking past Broadway in Alberta to look into my shop and see it's really nice inside. And it's totally worth checking out. And you can't do that? No, as a matter of fact, I got a ticket for that. For, we, we pulled off some of our window opaquing because people were like, what's in here? And that's a federal regulation? That's a federal regulation. Okay. The next thing is the 30 gram cannabis limit. So currently you can only buy up to 30 grams of weed in one transaction. But if you wanted to go to the liquor store today and you wanted to buy like, I don't know, that hundred pack of Paps Blue Ribbon, no problem. Mm -hmm. So why is it that you regulate the volume of, of cannabis sold, but you don't regulate the amount of alcohol? Because if, again, if Joe Public took home that hundred beers and he took, him, he took it all in a night, I mean, first of all, he's probably dead. And second of all, he's probably caused a lot of damage. Whereas if he took the same equivalency in cannabis home, I can guarantee you there is no way that he got past joint five. <laughs> <laughs> to, to give some context for people like myself who don't consume cannabis, what is 30 ounces equivalent? 30 grams is an 30. ounce of cannabis. What, but what does that mean? Like in a, in a form of a joint, how many joints do I get out of uh, 30 grams? So I would say the average... bombers or what? Well, I'd say the average <laughs> joint is a half gram, right? Yeah. So okay. then you're looking at out of 28 grams, which is an ounce, you'd be looking at 56. Yeah. Okay. 56 joints. And yeah. so basically in, in cannabis, there's one gram, three and a half, uh, seven grams, 14 grams, and 28 grams. That is kind of like how the, the packages is broke up. It's a I lot see. like tall cans, six packs. I see. 12 packs, 24s. And and so no matter what combination, when I go into your store, I can't buy more than 30, 30 grams. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it's even but like you said, if I want to go to the liquor store because I'm hosting a big party, a big Super Bowl party, I can buy as much beer as I want. You can fill up your truck and then get another yeah. truck. And right. I think it's important to remember so, that we're not just talking about dried flour. That 30 grams is also, there's an equivalency that goes along with drinks and oils, et cetera, that is very, very like all over the place. So, there is. So here's a great so, the, so you had three, you had two, two federal. So two federal. 
Okay. And then and the, the so, thing provincially would So be those, those are the two federal one, which is the opaquing of your windows and the maximum sale of 30 grams. Yeah. Okay. What's the provincial one? Uh, direct distribution. So what that means? What does that mean? So like we didn't talk about this, but cannabis is like craft beer. So if you're, if you're listening to this and you're a huge craft beer nerd, you know that fresh is best. Like you don't want six month old yellow dog. You want two week old yellow dog because it goes stale right? Because the yeast, the active yeast eats it and whatever. Same thing happens with cannabis. So when it, when cannabis is all being sent to a, a central distribution center as it is in Delta, first of all, it's not getting rotated like it should. It's just not. Um, so you're not necessarily getting the freshest cannabis when you buy it, right? Whereas direct distribution is just like craft beer. It allows me as a private retailer to call, you know, Amanda's grow up and say, Amanda, I want, you know, I want a pound of Blue Dream put into seven gram bags this month. Amanda can fulfill that for me and send it directly to me and it's probably a month old and it's fresh and it's hand trimmed and it looks beautiful and it's worth, you know, $65 the quarter, you know, whereas right. Why can't you do that today? This is just the way the rules are. Yeah, right now they're forced to buy from a central distributor who is also their competitor, what we were talking about with those BC cannabis stores. So essentially what we've done is we've- But is that any different than liquor sales, being a private liquor store and uh, and uh, yes, BC liquor store? Yes and no. So it is, so when, when I first got into this industry, I come from commercial real estate, so I knew right away that the, the, the measuring stick was private liquor. Mm -hmm. That is it, that is, your, that is your stocking horse. So private liquor took about 50 years on policy initiatives to change what we have changed in the last two years. Mm -hmm. So craft beer, craft brewers are allowed to buy like a craft beer, like Brewery Creek on 16th and Main. They buy all their beer from like the, the distributor, not from the LDB, but the, the craft beer distributor. Right. And it's going to be the same thing in cannabis. So for anybody listening who's wondering, like, how do I invest in cannabis or where should I put my money? Just look at the craft beer market and look how that changed. And you saw that like Parallel 49 or now leads the craft beer market in Vancouver, just like Phillips does in Victoria. Right. But you knew about them 10 years ago if you gave a care about beer. And it's the same with cannabis. The people that are killing it right now, the people that I can't keep on the shelves, are the people that are going to be killing it in 10 years. Mm -hmm. Your Aurora, your Canopy, your Hexo investments, they're just not it. Right. All right, how about yourself, Jacqueline? Any ideas beyond the ones that Matthew's just proposed? Matthew, you're just, you're into this, man. I, I love get... weed. Like, weed is a... Uh... <laughs> I love your I love your uh, your body language right now. You can I can tell you're passionate about this. Well, I said it to you earlier. I want to cut down 450 year old trees anymore, Andrew. I'm yeah. sorry, but I want my girls to run through them with their children. And it's yeah. selfish of us to to think that it's a way forward. Amen. That's a good one. Yeah. I agree. That's a that's been a really good point. Yeah. Jacqueline, how about yourself? Is there is there any um, policies that you're advocating? Acres is advocating for uh, changes that you could see at the provincial or federal level that would make. Uh, operators like Matthew be able to have a bit more of a, a chance of success? Well, I'll do three as well since you did three. Let's do, let's start with provincial. So consumption lounges are perfect. Like that would be a very easy, very straightforward way for our government to, you know, entice people into the regulated market, give people spaces, safe spaces to, you know, use cannabis in the same way that we give people who are at the bar a safe space to, to you know, consume alcohol. So that would be one that I would immediately change because like I said, as we said before, you know, from a tourism perspective, it opens up a huge opportunity. Um, these are in addition to what Matthew has already said. Um, and then federally, I would say most critically um, would be to, as I, you know, enumerated in a, in a very granular way earlier, fix the medical system. Um, because all of this 
all of the problems that we see here when we're talking about the unregulated market go back to that dysfunctional medical system. And it would be very straightforward for our government to look at that medical system and say, okay, here are the you know provisos that were laid out in the decision by Judge Phelan, and we're going to, you know, tick, 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 great. That would create a situation wherein people would have reasonable access to medical cannabis, and then they wouldn't necessarily need to grow their own all the time. Right. So and then, you know, if we were to if we were to remove that medical component from this conversation, what we'd be left with would be people who were, you know, interested in doing this activity as an economic, you know, as a business or what have you. And then we can have a conversation about how we actively, you know, get rid of those folks until we make that differentiation. Our government's hands are tied. Mm -hmm. That's that's my genuine belief here, because, I mean, what has happened historically on this file is that enforcement happens and then the federal government gets sued and then the courts side with the medical patients and then we're all set back. So that's another thing that I would say very profoundly. And then finally, I would say that I think it would be very judicious of our government to move this file from a public safety domain into an economic development framework. So right now, Health Canada and the Ministry of Public Safety, their mandate is not job creation. Their mandate is not economic development. Their mandate is protecting the public. I mean, they're protecting the public from a risk that nobody has quantified. I come from an insurance background, so mitigating risk means you have to define the risk first. Sure. But, I mean... This is a really important... Point I think you're getting to, yeah. especially post-COVID, with how bad the economy's been, how much revenue we ha- we got to create some some economic uh, activity here in this country. And we've officially come to a place where our forests are no longer carbon neutral. They are now, you know, because of the the impact that the forest fires and bugs and all those things have had on mm-hmm. our lumber industry, we're no longer carbon neutral on that front. So, you know. We have to accept the fact that we're going to have to pay the piper eventually. This is a consumer good that people love. They buy it hand over fist. It goes up in uh, in sales when we're having an economic uh, downturn. So ironically, it's recession proof. And unless we start looking at the sector like that, we're going to continue to spin our wheels. Mm. Because, I mean, really if you hand point. a public safety mandate to Health Canada, they're going to regulate you up into the... Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and the biggest thing I think, is, and this is what I like to say to people, is, is to sum it up, to sum up what's wrong with the industry is uh, the suit took away the, the plant from the hippie. And that's what we have done. And, and, we, and, and no offense to guys in suits, but... Hey, I wear a suit half the week. <laughs> I just don't like them. Uh, they're just too tight. I mean, I went to private school, so yeah. I, was, I was always wearing ties. Choking to death. Oh, yeah. Just, I'm so done with it. And if I don't have to wear them anywhere, I won't. And, and that's what it comes down to for me. This can be a very healthy happy great industry for canadians for taxpayers and for and for our future yeah and all we have to do is harness it and we haven't harnessed it and nobody in the public sphere cares enough because what's happening right now and it goes back to your public education piece is weed is weed okay it doesn't matter if it comes from a if a government related container government regulated container or the ziploc bag from your homie weed is weed and as long as those opportunities exist People are going to probably go back to their friend instead of me, simply because, as Jacqueline already said, is, is human behavior and it's laziness and it's buying patterns. Like, you probably still go to your same tailor that you've gone for for 10 years. He might change his style, but you're loyal to him because he does a good job. Right. Yeah. That's all there is to it. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been great. This has been highly educating for me. And uh, I have to admit, my mind's been blown up here with some of the stuff you've had to deal with. Like, it, this is, I'm impressed that you guys are still running your business considering all the 
hurdles you have to go over. I had a baby this year too. Don't <laughs> <laughs> forget. And we're talking about an unregulated operator literally across the street from this gentleman. Yeah, you could have thrown a rock through their window. <laughs> yeah, good for you. Jacqueline Pahoda, you're the executive director for Acres. Matthew Greenwood, one of the uh, co-founders and owners of Up and Smoke. Thank you for talking about cannabis with me today on the show. Um, it looks like there's lots of work to be done ahead. Hopefully you'll get some cooperation from this provincial government and uh, maybe we'll chat again in six months. So thanks for being on the show today. No worries. Thank thanks you very much. Thanks for having us.